0: Good morning, brother and sister. And again, we meet in this very special way through a camera into your house. And under the circumstances, praise the Lord, there is a a way that we can still continue to preach and to have fellowship with one another. Uh, I just wanna say that God is good, and I say it every Sunday. I don't wanna say it just out of repetitive nature, but if we look around us, God is still in control. And I know that a lot of people might say that that's not true. Uh, Just where is God? Well, He is here. Some people just choose not to listen to Him. And some people choose not to follow Him. It is those people who will find it really hard to find Jesus in our circumstances. Somebody once said to me that if you submit to your circumstances and you take that circumstances and put it at the foot of the cross, that Jesus is there to take that burden and help you carry that. So that is so wonderful. It's another day. It's another week. And praise the Lord, we're still alive to preach the gospel of Christ. Now I want to continue today as we do through the gospel of Mark. And as you know, that we learn from the gospel of Mark who Jesus is and why he came. And last week was a very pivotal moment uh, in, in, in as much that Jesus said to his disciples, he who wants to follow me needs to deny himself. And it's so hard in the life today for people to hear these words. It is really hard for some people to hear it, to deny yourself. And then he said, take up your cross and follow me. And I'm not going to preach the whole sermon over again, but uh, I just want to just remind you of what taking up your cross means. It is referring back to the Roman cross. And it is a place where... You are a spectacle in front of the whole world, opposing the world system. Back in the day, the Roman system, it was a place of suffering. It is a place of shame, and it's a place of death. And I pray and I believe that in the last week, you have denied yourself, took up your cross, and followed Jesus. Well, today we're going to continue on. And we finished in chapter 8, and now we're going to move into chapter 9 now i firmly believe that the very first verse in chapter 9 belongs in chapter 8 i just want to say to you that chapter division wasn't there it's not as if uh, when peter sat down with mark who most probably wrote uh, uh, you know dictate for mark to write this down he said okay now chapter 9 verse 1 no no chapter division came in later And it made it easier for us, chapter division, to follow in the Bible. So that I can actually say to you now, open up in your Bibles in chapter 9, verse 1. But back in the days, the Old Testament was a long scroll. And you can imagine to find a passage that you had to really go through and scan scan with your eyes to the passage uh, to read that on. And I was just thinking about that that people today are just lazy to pick up their Bibles and to open up in passages, which is so convenient and comfortable for us because you get all of these different books and chapters and verses. I wonder what would have been the excuse if we didn't have this, if we had those scrolls and to find a passage. If people are lazy to open it up now, how difficult and hard would it have been with a scroll like back in the days? Now... I spent this week some time in my paper Bible. Yeah, we've got digital Bibles, and uh, and I, I've I've migrated over to digital formats and so on. The Bible on the computer, the Bible on my phone, and it makes it easy because you can just quickly go from one to another, and you know just click the links. But this week I found it a really great blessing to open up my old trusted paper paperback Bible again, and. And to start just working like in the old days. Just, you know, take a passage. Uh, and in particular, I was taking the passage in Ephesians. I'm preparing for a sermon in the future. And just opening it up and start reading from there. And then follow the passages around and make the marks and go and follow that. And I was so blessed. And I would highly recommend for you to do that. To take your paper Bible, sit down and, uh, and read it like in the old days. I like the old time religion. So today I want to continue in Mark chapter 9. And as I said, let's start in Mark, Mark chapter 9. And we're going to read from verse 1. Now the, the topic today or the theme today is the Lord of the Mountains. Now think about that. That's the short version of it. A long topic of what I'm going to talk today about is the Lord of the Mountains is still the God in the valley, or the Lord in the valley. If you go from a mountaintop to a valley, and that's what I want to talk to you today about. I want to use this passage. I'm going to give you an outline of the passage. We're going to work through it in context. But then I want to come back and and use an application for you and for me and to encourage you today. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, this is Jesus, assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, if you think what Jesus did last week, when we read through in the last part of chapter 8, he was saying, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And remember, there is four application words that he used to to underline or put a, a foundation under that statement. And this, to me, is in the same context. After he said that to them, after he said to them, what would it uh, be useful for a man if he gained the whole world and lose his soul? Or what exchange can a man give for his soul? This is what he ends with. He says to them, I say to you that there are some who are standing here who've heard my words when I spoke to you, who will not taste death. In other words, they will not physically die, physically in the body, until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, there are some, and especially on the left side of politics and the left sides within churches, who's got a big problem with this verse. You see, they use this verse to say and to say, see, Jesus is making a mistake because he was talking to disciples around him, his 12 disciples, Peter, James, John, other people standing there. And he said to them, you will not die until you see the kingdom of God present with power. Uh, But the kingdom of God is not. Jesus didn't come a second time. You see, they referred to a second death, uh, coming of the Lord. And those people are all dead right now. They're all dead. So surely, surely Jesus made a mistake here. But they are wrong. Jesus never made a mistake. And the Holy Scriptures in the Bible do not contradict itself. You just got to read it in context. And again, I want to bring it back to you that... This verse belongs to the end of chapter 8. In that phrase, in context, when he talked about follow me, and then he talks about the kingdom of God. If we follow Jesus Christ, we follow Him into the kingdom of God. If you are born again, you are born again into the kingdom of God. And this is, this is so important for us to understand this. You see... And I'm going to read the next verses now to explain this to you. But if you go back to a kingdom. Now, today there is only a few countries who still got kingdoms. Uh, Britain has got a kingdom. We've got a queen in the kingdom. But back in the day, if if you see a king, a kingdom's got a king. And if you see the king, you see the kingdom. Because behind that king behind that title of king, there is a kingdom. And this is how you need to look at this verse. He says, "Some of you will not die. I say it to you until you see and they still they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now let's just read on. In verse two he says, "Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John, and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became like shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on the earth can whiten them. Oh, I love the Bible. You see, there's a laundromat right there. He says that um, no launderer could whiten them like it before. Now, he takes... Three men with him here. And I want you to notice that. If it's your paper Bible, just (coughs) circle those three names. Because I'm going to come back to them. And I'm going to use them as an application at the end of the sermon. But he says that Jesus was transfigured in front of them. The word used here for transfigured is the Greek word metamorpho. And that's where we get our English word metamorphosis from. Now, we all know what a metamorphosis is. It means to change from one form to another form. And that's the word that's used here. Now, here is a good example. For us, if I ask you, what is metamorphosis? You will look at the next image and you say, now I understand. You know, if you take a butterfly, for instance, once a butterfly comes out of a worm and a cocoon, And within the cocoon after, you know, weeks, it comes out, it's a metamorphosis, it changes from the form of a worm into this cocoon and it comes out on the other side as a butterfly. You and I will also have seen this in people, metamorphosis taking place and we see it so often. We see the same person right now, right now, with a massive big smile on their faces. And you look at them and you think, what a jolly fella. What a great girl. You know, they are so, look at them, they are so friendly. But one small thing happen, and what happens? Metamorphosis, a change of form in that face. And then we also sometimes find people who are sitting down and they've got different kinds of metamorphosis, different kinds of faces they wear at different stages in their lives. Now, I don't want to confuse it here, but if you, if you carry a different mask of who you are in your heart, that is called hypocrisy. I don't want to confuse the word here, but metamorpho is to change into another form. Now, I'm by far not saying that Jesus is like this butterfly, but he had a a fantastic metamorphosis that took place. And we read about this in the passage. Now, the key about metamorphosis is that the change comes from within. You see, some people portray this, the transfiguration, as a bright, bright, bright light that shone upon Jesus. And because this light shines upon Jesus, he stood out, he looked more brighter. We see this when you have in concert, the whole room is darkened and one person stands up there and you get the spotlight. And once the spotlight shines on that person, he, he is sort of transfigured into a brighter, you know, everything, the clothes he's got is brighter and so on. That's not metamorphic. Meta, that is an external factor that came and just highlight you like, you know, I'm standing here in front of you and there's a little bit more bright lights here and, the, and I use those lights. That's external to, to not give shadows for the camera and so on. That's what metamorphosis. Metamorpha comes from the inside. The change comes from the inside. The form changes from the inside out. You see that butterfly when it's in a cocoon? It's nothing externally. If you you poke on the cocoon, you will damage it. You can't do anything. Within the right time, it's going to come out in its splendor and glory. And this this is where it comes from, the power. And this is another side of Jesus that you and I should know better, should know. It is so wonderful uh, because that shone that comes from inside of him made his clothes shine so brightly that they say there that even the best laundromat that you could find couldn't make it as white as that. Now, I, I must say, back in the day, I can't think of how they could get those clothes so clean, but... You know, praise God, we've got Omo today. You just put a little bit of Omo in the clothing and it comes out white again. This is different. This is, this is the Sakaya light, the, the glory light of God, who is transformed Jesus in front of their eyes. And it shines so brightly, which really excites me. You see, when he uses the word there that his clothes became shining, he uses the word there, which means exceedingly white exceedingly white that means beyond measure you can't measure that whiteness now i'm getting excited for a reason about this because if you read if you read what it says in that verses there it says uh, and they became shining exceedingly white like snow like snow, L- listen, brother and sister. Never, never skip over words in the Word of God. Take those words. Every single word in the Word of God is encouraging for me. He says, "White like snow, as no launderer could could do that." So, if you think about that, immediately there's a scripture verse that should jump up in your mind. Whiter than snow. Where is that? Isaiah chapter one, verse eighteen. What does it say there? He says there, come on, let's reason together. Now, he's now going to talk not about an outward cloak, a clothing. He's going to talk about an inward garment. You see, each one of us are carrying a garment. And we were born with a garment which was stained with sin. And that, that stain is, is something we hide it, we hide it from the world. But praise God, God can see the stain of sin in your life. And, and what happens here in Isaiah 1:18 he says, "Come now, let us reason together. Reasoning together is you say something, and I'm going to tell you the truth. Now let me tell something to you, brother and sister. We can't reason against God's righteousness, against his truth, against His majesty. And, and here is the amazing thing, if I think of that whiter than snow, he says, uh, though your sins were like scarlet, your sin, that cloak that you've got, your, your, your ragged clothes that you've got, your, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a word that the song talks about, uh, he took away my, my ga- uh, scattered garments. And, and he says, though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. White as snow. Though they were red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Think about the words when, when Mark, year out of Peter, who was there physically and saw it with his own eyes, when he says to Mark, his clothes became exceedingly shiny exceedingly bright that means beyond measure and here is here is here is the point here is here it is doesn't matter how you come to jesus christ your sun your stained garment doesn't matter how it is You come into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ and He will change your garment into into an exceedingly white beyond measure. That sinful stained life of yours into white as snow. How wonderful is that? How marvelous is that? That we serve a God like this. And this is what they saw right in front of their eyes. Now in verse 4, Uh, Mark continues to write down and Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say for they were greatly afraid. And as a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. This is my beloved son, hear him. Now we see the appearances of Moses and Elijah. And I just want to say, I personally believe most likely that this is the two witnesses that will appear in Revelation chapter 11. Most likely. uh, different message, but I, I, I can preach about that. I can give you the evidence out of the word of God about that. I believe that. But these two men appear to him. And you might say, why these two? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, here is the facts of the Old Testament. That Moses represented the law. You remember that God gave Moses the law and not only the 10 commandments but out of that flew a lot of other laws in Deuteronomy which is given to the people so if you think about moses you think about law and elijah represent the prophets the prophets who heard the voice from god now here's the catch that both of those is the volume of the old testament the law and the prophets it's the volume of the old testament And both of those, the volume of the Old Testament, Moses and and, and Elijah, talks about one person. Who's that? Come on, tell me who's that. It's Jesus Christ himself. So now we find how how marvelous is this. How wonderful. Peter, James, and John saw for themselves The law and the prophets coming together with Jesus Christ, the center point of both of these. The fullness, the whole counsel of the Old Testament, which is portrayed right here at this point in time. This is a fantastic part of Mark. I'm so excited preaching out of this. I've I've heard a preacher once said, and this is going many years back, said that, The Bible throws so thin in that you can't preach out of it anymore if you stay with the church for so long. I want to say to that minister, this is passages that you can spend days and, and six months and a year on unpacking what's happening here. So it's Moses and Elijah. Another interesting fact about Moses and Elijah is that represented here with Jesus is Moses representing those who died and went to the grave. Now, they couldn't find Moses' body. I understand that, but he didn't go into the land of promise. He didn't go in there. Remember, he had to speak to the rock and he hit the rock with with a stick with his rod. And because he disobeyed God, he couldn't go into the promised land. But he died. And, and you find in the book of uh, Jude that uh, the angel said that there was a war going on about the body of Moses. But still, the Bible reflects that he died on the earth. Elijah, interestingly enough, did not. What happened with Elijah? Well, you can read all about it. A chariot with fire came down and he took Elijah up, not dying on the earth. And here, both of those are presented, represented with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. How wonderful and exciting. The Bible is living. It is powerful. It is like a two-edged sword who cuts between bone and marrow, spirit and soul, and it is the discerner of the heart. And this is what we see who is represented here. The whole sum total of the Old Testament with Jesus here on this mountain. Now, the Bible says there, interesting enough, that They talked with Jesus, Elijah and Moses, and Jesus had a conversation. And Peter didn't write that down. Peter didn't write that down. And I've heard a few times people have got their own ideas what that conversation could have been about. What did they talk about? It would be absolutely fantastic if we could know what they talked about. And then some people are trying to be clever and they fill in their own gaps of what they think the conversation could have been about. (laughs) But we didn't have to do that because it is told us to us what they were talking about. If you flick over to Luke and we read Luke chapter 9 verse 31, Luke also writes about this. And when Luke got the information, he wasn't there physically, but this is what was told to him the conversation was. In Luke chapter 9.31, who appeared in glory, and he's talking now about the transfiguration at, um, on the mountain, and spoke his... Um, Luke 9.31, I'm, I'm getting excited. 9.31, who appeared in glory. This is uh, uh, Moses, Elijah, and also Jesus, and spoke his decease which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So what am I saying? Luke is telling us that Jesus was telling Moses and the prophets about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And what was going to happen in Jerusalem? He was going to die for our sins. Now, put on your hat now of going back into the Scriptures. Why would He want to tell it to the Old Testament? Who was represented on the mountain that day? The Old Testament was represented. Moses, Elijah. The New Testament was represented. Peter, James, and John. And what is He doing now? Jesus is showing the whole counsel of the whole Bible, the Old and the New Testament, of what He came to do, and that is to die on the cross for your and for my sin. Now, here is the catch in all of this. If you read Peter and you go to his first chapter, he talks about this. He talks about, you know, Jesus Christ who was going to come and the prophets was looking into this. They couldn't understand it back in the day. They were prophesying. They saw bits and pieces about the Messiah. It was a mystery unto them which needed to be revealed in the New Testament. And here we find Jesus coming at this pivotal moment and he brings both of those together and he has this conversation to them. The Old Testament that once was already passed away and was taken up into heaven without dying. And he says this is what's going to happen in jerusalem now who was going to see that the new testament saints was going to see that and that is so wonderful about this passage now peter of course you know the big mouth the extrovert He looked at this. He didn't know what to do. You know, he was there with Peter, James and John. What do we do? And the first thing that he says, oh, this is so wonderful. It's so swell, Lord. Let's build tabernacles for you. What does it mean? What does it mean when he says that? When he says that, he says, let us build for you guys dwelling places here. Never forget that just a few hours, a half a day, maybe earlier on, what did Jesus say? Jesus said to them, I must die. I must go to Jerusalem and die. And who rebuked him? Peter did it. Peter said to him, If I be it from you, he rebuked Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. And here we find old old Peter. He says, let's build houses. It's so great to have you here, Moses and Elijah. Let's build houses and you stay here with us. Oh, but then the cloud came. And they were exceedingly afraid because I'll tell you what the presence of God is that it's a fearsome presence and what happened out of that cloud came that voice he said this is my son and I, I want you to see now what he says to him he says this is my beloved son and then he uses a few two words just two words hear him now it also happened at Jesus' baptism, remember? This is the second time. At Jesus' baptism, what happened? The heavens opened up and a voice came out and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit came down like a dove and descended upon Jesus. And we know what happened. Here, what happens here? A cloud came upon them. And the voice came and said, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Now, um, this is a message in itself. And I think it's so poignant for our day. The words hear Him. And this is what we need to do. We need to hear Jesus Christ. I hear so many preachers today and I, I implore you, just listen to the sermons A lot of the sermons today is about worldviews and all of this nonsense and so on. But what a lot of the preachers of today say is, Hear me. Hear me. I want to say to you today, this preacher don't want to do that. I want to tell you to hear Jesus. Hear Him. And how do I do that? I just preach to you, Jesus. If there's anything else that just sounds off, then you need to reject it. Let me give you an example. Big orchestra. There's so many uh, instruments. It's a symphony. And the conductor stands up there in the front with those two sticks in his hands and sometimes they look funny, but they know exactly what they do. The conductor stands up there. The whole symphony orchestra sits right. Everybody is ready to play. Hundreds of instruments. From the biggest to the smallest, the piccolo. Do you know what a piccolo is? It's a small instrument. Even if you go to a coffee shop today and you say piccolo, they know it's a small coffee. Now, the conductor starts and he starts playing and the orchestra play. And the piccolo, who's the smallest instrument, has got a role to play, maybe a small role to play halfway through the set. And the conductor goes on and he plays on and the piccolo comes in, but it's off note, just, just half off note. The well-trained conductor will stop the whole symphony. I'm talking about practicing now. He will stop the whole symphony and he will say that that small piccolo is off beat or is out of tune or needs to be played correctly we need to be that conductor. It's called Bereans. Everything you hear, we need to test it by the word of God. That if it sounds just off, if it sounds as if the preacher says, hear me, then you may need to say, no, no, I want to hear him. Because that's an instruction directly from the father. He says, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now, it makes such a big impact on Peter when he heard these words. Listen to him later on in his life, Second Peter 1.16 For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, you see. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we didn't come by fables. It it wasn't false. It wasn't off. It wasn't out of tune. When we came to you by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And we are busy with that passage now. He says, I, Peter, was an eyewitness of His majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. Now he talks about what happened on the mountain. This is what he's writing now, made such a big impact on him. Why shouldn't it make an impact on you and me? He says, when this voice came from glory, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard his voice which came from heaven and when we were with him on the holy mountain. Such a big impact. It should make a big impact on your life as well. But I hurry on. In uh, Mark 9 verse 8, we continue the narrative. Suddenly, oh, I like this man called Mark and we will meet him one day in heaven. I like his writing. He writes better books than most of the self-help books today. Suddenly, I feel the passion in there. When they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they've seen till the Son of Man has risen from the dead. There's a reason for that. They saw Jesus, how he was going to be after he was risen from the dead. Three saw it before time. He, in his resurrected body, they're going to see him. And... um. We're going to see him just as they saw him. There's a song like that. We shall see Jesus just as they saw him. In power and majesty, we shall see Jesus. How wonderful. In Mark chapter 9, 10, so they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. What was he talking about? And they asked him, now this is a really interesting question. Listen to it. They say, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? So there's so many people who make these fishermen and these people who follow Jesus make them off us illiterate. They make them off as the dropouts out of the universities. fishermen, tax collector. Well, Luke was a doctor, I get that. But his disciples who was with him and, and, and you know, if you go through all of them, but they came to him and they... they they had to listen to what the scribes say and study a little bit of this because they came to him and they say, Why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come and they did not uh, did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him wow this is now a massive and again brother and sister we can uh, we can i can preach long on this okay but i want to don't go to the delve deep. i'm running out of time he uses different tenses here i don't know if you've noticed because they say why do Elijah must come and he answered them and said indeed, indeed Elijah is coming first He's pointing towards a time in the future. He is coming first. When he answered, "Um, uh, um, uh, why do you, uh, sorry, I've just lost my place. I'm excited. He answered him and said, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. But then he says in verse 13, but I say to you that Elijah has also come, has past tense, is coming, future tense. What is going on, Jesus? Well, let me explain to you the best I can. Elijah is coming first, and this is referring back to Micah. Uh, Malachi, sorry. In Malachi we find a passage written in verse chapter four, verse five Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet. This is what they were referring to, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest they come and strike the earth with a curse. Okay, That's what they're referring to. Elijah must come first. That's what the scribes say. They use this passage here. Uh, he must come first. And Jesus, yes, he's, he's going to come first to restore things. Now, like I said before, I absolutely believe that Elijah is going to be one of the witnesses in Revelation 11. And in Revelation 11, he's pointing towards this time, just right before the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19. There's a lot of things that's going to happen. But that is the passage where Jesus he says, he's He's come and he will restore a lot of things. Now, what does it mean when he uses the past tense? then? When he says to them that he has come. Look at verse 13. But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, and it is written of him. Who was that? Well, it is said of John the Baptist that he came in the spirit of Elijah. Now, let me just quickly whisper this to you. The Bible doesn't refer here to incarnation, reincarnation. No, Elijah will physically come in Revelation 11. But here with John the Baptist, what happened? The spirit uh, in the likeness of, of Elijah did John the Baptist come and what did he do? Exactly what he said. He says it himself. He says, look, I come to prepare the way for him who comes after me, whose sandals I'm not even worth to make. I'm just preparing the way for the Messiah. And what happened? He saw him while he was baptizing and he said, behold the Lamb of God. And then what happened? He was taken prison and then he lost his head. Jesus said to them that he has come. The spirit of Eliza has come through A man like John the Baptist, when he said, and they can do with him what they wish, and it is written of him, and that is already there. He came in, he was a type of Elijah. See, the Bible never contradicts itself. Now let me encourage you, because I, I, I started off by reading to you the first part. I want to come back to Peter, James, and John. And this is hopefully will bless you today. I know we're living in difficult c- circumstances, in trying times. Look around you, you know, here we go. I'm talking about lockdown and and quite honestly, I thought about this the other day. You know, these videos might sit on a website somewhere and a year from now, two years from now, somebody might listen to it and go, what is he talking about a lockdown? What, what's going on with this guy? Well, I think everybody will know what I'm talking about. But here we are right in the middle of, of stage four lockdown in Melbourne. And, you know, is it going to continue? I don't know. I'll leave that over to the Lord. But let me encourage you with this. I want to come back to these guys. I, they are called the inner circle. Peter, James and John. I call it more an intimate experience they had with Jesus. These three. Intimate experience. And I want to use three parts of that to encourage you. And especially in our times. Look at Mark 9 verse 2. He says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John and led them where? You need to look at the location. Jesus led them on a high mountain. Apart by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. Now let let me talk to you uh, spiritually here. You know, in our lives we have... We have also mountains and we have valleys. And we have a song, The the God of the mountain is also the God in the valley. And that is where this theme comes from for this message. The God of the mountain is also the God in the valley. That's where it comes from. I sort of was thinking about that song. And then as I was praying and I was reading through this, it just dawned upon me to just lift this out and show it to you. Here is this man on a mountaintop. And it's so wonderful. Everything is going well. They are so on top of the world. They rejoice and Jesus is there. And they see Jesus and they share with Him in this wonderful brightness that He is. Everything is shining brightly. You know, all the clothes is even looking brightly. And it is wonderful. And so oftentimes we find ourselves in places of that in our lives. Where everything goes well, and everything is well and... You know, even, even the dog and the cat loves you and they come and sit at your feet and, you know, everything you touch is gold and all the relationships is all good and the, and, and you walk around and you say, how are you doing? And you say, you know, absolutely it's good. I'm doing very well. I'm feeling great. I'm on a mountaintop of my life. And it's so wonderful to spend time there. No wonder, no wonder that Peter thinks about building tabernacles there. Let's stay on this on this mountaintop forever let's enjoy this you know cumberless life forever how wonderful jesus and you know what jesus is there with you and and you and it's a special revelation you get from him the others didn't get this it's only peter james and john they saw him change right in front of their eyes it's a special revelation now, I just also want to say right now that, that God is not a respecter of person. He hasn't got special children in his, you know, he's, he's got his, he wants his favorite children in his non-favorite. God is not like that. So this is what I want to say that you and I, we are the children of God, picked by God, saved by God. And, and you know what? He rejoiced with us when we're on the mountaintops. And there's that special revelation for you and for me from Him. You open up the Word and you read it. And, and man, He's just in the room and He blesses you. And the Holy Spirit is there. And, and you feel God. It's so wonderful to serve you. and it, And I want to build a tabernacle right here. I want to stay in this good time, Lord. Everything is going well. No worries in the world. And it's so wonderful. Because Jesus is there. But then I find these men at another stage as well. And I call him here the Lord of Miracles. Now, in the first passage, we call him the Lord of the Mountain. And here I want to call him the Lord of the Miracles. And we find it when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. In Mark chapter 5 verse 37. And he permitted no one to follow them except who? Peter, James and John. And the brother of James, uh, who is the brother of James. Uh, and then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw the Talmud and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And then obviously we know the passage. He took the girl into, an, he went into another room with the parents. He sat down with the girl and he raised her from the dead. to let the girl stand up. But before he do that, you know, these people were ridiculing him. Don't do that, Jesus. Now, what do we learn out of this? We were just now on the mountaintop. It was so wonderful. We didn't want to move from there. But now we come into another situation and we are eyewitnesses with Jesus. These three men were with Jesus of, of impossible situations. Now, you tell me today that raising somebody from the dead, if you are not Jesus Christ, it's an impossible situation. And we find so many impossible situations according to us in our lives. We also find ourselves on that platform. It's not the valley yet. It's right in between the valley and the. And there and, and the mountaintop. It's right at the mountaintop in the valley. There's the space there where we find ourselves in impossible situations. Now, let me just say it right now. Your impossible in situation might not be. If I look at it from the outside in, I might stand and say, What is going on here? Open up your eyes. It's not so impossible. But who am I to say that? Because I haven't walked in your shoes. I don't experience it like you experience it. But for you, truly, it's an impossible situation. And here is the encouragement. Peter, James and John was there. Again, God's not a respecter of person. Why He would bring those men in is to give them a build of faith in Jesus Christ. He is the God of the impossible. He is the Lord of the impossible. He is the Lord of the miracle. I'm speaking to you now who disbelieve in Him, who said, you know, it's Ichabod, it's give up. Peter, James and John is also there. They were just on the mountaintop. Now they are right there in the midst. And what are they doing? They are ridiculing Jesus like the others do. Because it's such an impossible situation. But here is the thing. My Jesus is a Jesus of miracles. And this is what Jesus do. He took that girl and He raised her from the dead. What if, what if you just walk past Jesus in a uh, uh, period in, in the street right after that? He could tell you about the Jesus of the mountaintops and the Jesus of the impossible. But there's one that I want to finish off with today. He's still God in the valley. He's still God in the valley and we find him in the valley. <coughs> Mark chapter 14 verse 32 I want you to open up and read there. Then they came to a place which is called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is in the valley. Gethsemane is not on the mountaintop. Gethsemane is not in the place of the miracle. Gethsemane is the place in preparation for death. Do you hear what I'm saying? Here he comes and he and they bring him to the place which is called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. This is far away from the hype of the mountaintop. It's far away from the from the doubt of the of the miracles. It is right there, which we call rock bottom, where we feel we've lost hope, where we feel there's no way forward where you've already spoken to all of your, your support group and all the answers is coming back and it just doesn't satisfy you. You just don't find the answer that you are looking for. You feel it's just that one step short of, of addressing what you need to address in your life. It is right down, let's call it lights out, knockout. There's no breath. You come to this point, which is the valley. And here is the great news about it, that I read in that passage that Jesus prayed, because He was going to go to the cross the next day, that His sweat became like blood. He prayed blood for you and for me. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying to you that the God of the mountain and the God of the miracle is also the God in the valley. He's the God there. Jesus was on the mountaintop with you. He's with you with the miracle, the impossible in your life. And right now, once you drop down from the impossible... And he goes to that hopeless situation. He is still there. Now, Though it's so wonderful if we have the New Testament. Because in Hebrews it says that he is our high priest. Who intercedes for you and for me before the Father. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Where he intercedes for you and for me. So take it this morning. Be encouraged this morning. I don't know where your situation is. I don't know whether you're sitting in that hopeless pit of miry clay, desperately looking for a ray of light, a, a, a ray of light. But know this, that He's there, and He will. He said, "Just reach out and touch the Lord as He passes by." And if you're sitting in this position where there's a miracle that needs to take place, don't follow Him just for the miracle. Follow Him for who He is. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. But trust Him and have faith in Him. And if you are sitting there today and you're on the mountaintop, enjoy it. Enjoy it with the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray to you today because you are my God and I love you and I trust you. Father, unto you we, we praise, and to you we pray, Lord, and we bring praise. And Father, thank you that you are there with us on the mountain top, but also in the miracle stage of our lives, and also in the valley. I pray that you go with my brothers and sisters, in Jesus' name, Amen.